Welcome to another episode of El Cafecito. My name is Leonardo Casenza. I'm your host for the second season, reminding everyone that El Cafecito is affiliated to the Latin American Studies Program. And we'd like to thank the Office of the Vice President at the University of Toronto that gave us this award that made this program possible. Now to my introduction, we resist. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Anna Carneiro. I'm a student at U of T. I'm in my third year of international relations and Latin American studies. I am from Brazil. I grew up in Sao Paulo. Hi, my name is Roxana Escobar. I'm from Peru. La vida de las mujeres negras importa. Hi, everyone. It's Ana Paulina. Um, and the Black Lives Matter movement is an international movement. Hola, hello, Cubo. My name is Raquel. And as we all have said, las vidas negras importan hoy y siempre. So there's this favela in Brazil, actually in Rio, called Cidade de Deus, the City of God. There's a movie about it um, made in the early 2000s that's actually really good that I recommend everyone to watch. It's one of the most awarded Brazilian movies. And I was reading the news the other day and I saw that uh, one in four people that live in the city of God um, got COVID. And this, uh, and it's undeniable to say that the people that live in these communities are predominantly black. And uh, this makes me wonder if uh, other countries in Latin America and other black communities, Afro-descendant communities in Latin America, are also disproportionately affected by COVID in other Latin American countries. And I wonder, and I ask you, are they um, and why? Well, yes, Afro-descendant communities have been particularly impacted by COVID since we also talk about this from the indigenous episodes, uh, racialized people are structurally always in a vulnerable position in societies that are so racist, like the ones in Latin America. Uh, from the Peruvian experience, when you have like 70% of the Afro-Peruvian population living in cities and 30% living in like rural settings or like agricultural settings, they have all been impacted, 100% of them. Uh, and I, I just actually was invited by the municipality of Lima to talk about these issues for like a brief moment. And what is happening is that, for example, in the specific case of Afro-Peruvian women, they are always labeled as domestic workers because of the colonial uh, practices that have been uh, applied upon them. They are not only losing their jobs, uh, they can be buried, but at the same time, they are not capable of acquiring new jobs because that same uh, stereotype applies. So they are supposed to be domestic workers. And when they are trying to say, no, I am not, but I want to apply to a different job, during a pandemic, there's like, no, but you're supposed to be a domestic worker. And like, we don't want people from outside, you know, like leaving our house or coming to our house, or like even traveling to our house during this time. So it's a very difficult position to be. It's a very difficult scenario to navigate. And it's, it's very scary. And I just would like to add that also in Lima, we have, a huge population of Venezuelan migrations. They are also uh, Afro-descendant, like a, a good part of them, and they are worse than ever. And I do implore other listeners and everyone who wants to be active in something happening in Latin America to take a good look of what's happening with the Venezuelan migration and the Haitian migration in Latin American countries, because it's bad, it's very bad. Yeah, I think that's something very, very important. In Ecuador, we also have a lot of people from Venezuela, from Cuba, um, and from other parts of, of Latin America that come to Ecuador looking for better opportunities. And I think that's mainly because we have the American dollar as our currency. But they they suffer from like many things. And I think that's important to take into account why intersectionality really matters. Because uh, it's not only where they're coming from, but also uh, the other type of oppressions they're going through. Not only because of their their home country, uh, where they were born, but also um, their, their race, their class, their social status, their abilities. 
and their gender. So it's it's really important to consider these communities that are, are very vulnerable at this time. And yep. Yes, I in in the context of Colombia, what we see is that the Afro-descendant populations mainly are on the Pacific and, and Eastern coast, but at the same time, because of all the violence and civil disruptions in our country, there's been a mass migration towards urban areas, similar as to what Roxana was explaining in, in Lima. And a lot of Afro-descendant communities right now are abandoned and are neglected because the way the municipalities see it is that, oh, we didn't actually give you permission to live here, so we don't, we're not going to take any responsibility for you. And as you were saying, Roxana, like a lot of them right now are trying to find jobs in this pandemic, but what we're seeing is a lot of racism and hate coming from the elite in our cities, you know, towards our Afro-descendant community. So to answer your question, Leo, absolutely, it is disproportionately affecting Afro-descendant communities in Colombia. And these are issues that are not really talked about. Um, in Brazil, we have this myth of racial democracy where um, people say that because we're mixed, everything is fine and we all have the same past and therefore we're equal and together. Um, but the, the, the fact that these um, communities that are geographically located in separate areas, if you think about Rio, it's um, segregated to, to the geographic level. You have lower income communities and favelas um, in the mountains and you have the good locations for for the richer and the the, the good fortunate people um, and and this issue is not really talked about how racially affected um, how racially affecting is COVID um, especially in the context of Brazil and I think it's because of this myth of racial democracy it's really not talked about and not considered. Yeah that's a big problem in our understanding of the pandemic in Brazil I just wanted to add that Brazil is the, has the largest black population outside of Africa in absolute numbers, and yet they're still underrepresented in most aspects of our society, especially positions of power. And in the case of favelas, during the pandemic, a lot of the communities had to become self-reliant and establish the social um, distancing measures and all the OMS public health advice and even organized crime played a bigger role in curbing COVID in favelas than our actual government did. Wait, that organized crime? How yeah, that how, so, how did how did that happen? Yeah, um, so I was reading about a couple of gangs that controlled the social life in some favelas and they established a curfew and they mandated the use of masks even before the government did. That was in the earlier months of the pandemic. And they were a very authoritarian rule. They just said, if you're out during these times and you're not wearing a mask, you get a bullet. Yeah, but we can't forget that the activity, uh, the economic activity um, remained in the favelas even during COVID times. Um, and going back to what Roxana was saying, um, the domestic workers, there was this big thing in Brazil, it was even it was treated seriously and even made um, fun jokes about how um, the uh, white middle class and uh, workers would go uh, from white middle class um, background white usually um, workers from Brazil would go to the, uh, go to Disney or go to the US and then come back with the coronavirus and um, instead of isolating completely they would still have a maid which in uh, the majority of the populations of maids in Brazil are, are of low income and are Afro-descendants. And these maids would also get COVID and that would be passed along to their whole communities. So there's this whole discussion that they won't leave their privilege and won't clean their own houses, um, but yet will pass COVID to, the, to, 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 next, to people around them, so. Yeah, um, the first death by COVID in Rio was actually a domestic worker whose employers went abroad and tested positive and didn't tell her about the test results. And that's just telling of how black people in Brazil are seen as second class citizens at best and less human at worst. Wow, that's, that's shocking. Um, I was reading a report from the, the UN, I think they, it was released like last year, and it was saying that 
um, there's this uh, province in Ecuador, Esmeraldas, and it has one of the uh, highest um, percentage of Afro-Ecuatorianos. And most of the Afro-Ecuatorianos that live in Esmeraldas, um, at least like 40%, sorry, uh, they live under poverty. So uh, it's, it's a situation that they are not only being affected where they work, but also in their own spaces, they don't have access to clean water, to education, to essential services that they need. So they're putting their lives at risk by going to work because at the end they're essential workers, um, but they're still facing at home a lot of risk and a lot of even um, challenges that don't allow them to feel safe. So I wonder like how different governments in, in Latin America have tried to um, help these communities. I don't know if, if you can share us a little bit about what's happening in Colombia, like if there's any special program that the government has tried to implement. I don't know what's happening in, in Peru about this as well, or, or in Brazil. Is there any, has, has there uh, been any special, uh, I don't know, decision or plan to help these communities? Uh, so in the context of Colombia in, in general, according to our constitution that was updated in the 90s, there's supposed to be special protections for the territories of Afro-descendants in Colombia, but that's on paper, not in reality. It's never enforced. Um, and I think that's, that's a lot to do with, you know, the legacy of colonialism in Latin America, and especially in Colombia, we see it, these inherited values that uphold the European hegemonic system. Like they can say they're gonna do all this, but until they actually do and start valuing black lives like they promised, I don't I don't see anything happening. I don't know if your other if other countries. I know a couple years ago a report came out that um, according to the new constitution, there's supposed to be two seats in government for specific like black Colombians. And they were not filled by Black Colombians. They were filled by non-Black mestizos. So it really, it's, it's laughable. In the case of Peru, we have almost nothing regarding Afro-Peruvian population. But we have been working on it for a long time now. It will be almost 10 years. So 10 years ago, the government created the the first and only office focused on Afro-Peruvian descendants, Afro-Peruvian population. Uh, it's a very small office, like five people working in there, but they have done so much. They have done the first Afro-Peruvian census. They have gone to different geographies and territories in Peru to identify which territories are are considered Afro-Peruvians and also like if people identify themselves as Afro-Peruvians, which is great. Uh, it's a very active office. They have had so many research and uh, programs directed to Afro-Peruvian women since probably five years ago. They have something very interesting that they really make the effort to have June, the, mess of the, the month of June, as Afro-Peruvian Cultural Month, which is awesome because there are so many activities and so many conferences related to what's happening with Afro-Peruvians in Peru. Uh, I have been invited a couple of times to participate. It's really awesome. It's really awesome because like, you get together with different people from academic backgrounds, from social activists, you know, like from soup kitchens, sharing knowledge and sharing uh, experiences of life and also sharing, you know, like a shared joy and a shared pain, which is very beautiful to have. And sadly, that hasn't actually reflected much in a society change regarding the stereotypes and racism towards the Afro-Peruvian population. But what I can say now with confidence is that now there is probably a good amount of people that are Afro-Peruvian descent, Afro descent, and they are like fighting for this every day. 
And even though probably in the past they also existed, and I know they existed, like I know the history of it, but now we're so vocal and uh, we're just like not giving a chance to to the country just to forget about this issue, right? And like we're present everywhere and we're pushing for the agenda every time that we can. And something actually very interesting happened at the end of June that there is a, a civil organization that is like a feminist civil organization focusing on Afro-Peruvian women's rights that pushed really hard to have uh, July 25th, the day, the national day of Afro-Peruvian women. And you know how it is with this kind of, you know, like uh, recognition, because it can mean some, it, like in the Colombia case, it's actually the best case to explain this. What happened in Colombia with, uh, with the organization of Comunidades Negras, with so many years of fight, so many years of like legal recognition, so many years of a changed constitution, uh, so many uh, scholars and historians talking about the geographical relationships of Afro-descendant uh, people in Colombia with the territory, with life. You have Arturo Escobar creating a whole concept of territories of being. Uh, it was amazing that in reality it didn't actually quite set and changes really wasn't made. Uh, so when I heard about uh, the National Day of Peruvian Women, I, I had the same fear, right? Like, this is good, like, this is some, we need to be recognized, that's for sure. And this needs, needs this day needs to exist, for sure. But at the same time, is it gonna really work? Is it gonna really do something? And what I found really interesting is that, so the Minister of Culture, like, went and say hey, like, these days, something that we're trying to push forward, we want for Afro-Peruvian women to be recognized in this particular way, and like the amount of trolls on Facebook. But what about all women? But what about indigenous women? Why do you try to separate us if we're all mestizos, if we're all equals, if we're all Peruvian? And what it was really funny is that Cecilia Ramirez, who is the, uh, the president of this like women's organization that I was mentioning, Sedem Munet, when I was talking to her, the first thing that she told me is like, we have the day of Pollo La Brasa. We have the day of Pisco Sour. We have the day of Ceviche. And that's okay. But when we try to recognize black people, that separation, that's bad, that is going against Peruvianness. So from my experience as an Afro-Peruvian scholar and like an Afro-descending women living in Peru, it's that you're always going to fight that. Like even though we have a state presence and even though there's so many people working towards this agenda and these issues, it's difficult because we just need to keep going. And I will close this rant <laughs> with like, <laughs> The director of this little office in the Ministry of Culture uh, focused on Afro-Peruvian population. We had a conversation a few weeks ago and the first thing that she told me was, I didn't you know, experience what it is to be in a country where equality exists for us. My kids, my daughters didn't experience either, but my granddaughters, they will. Like they will leave this. And like, that for me is even like, I get emotional because it's like, yeah, like I didn't get that. But right now, like I'm fighting so hard and like this collective of people, like not only in Peru, but like in the whole Americas, what's happening in Brazil is huge and it's so powerful. What's happening in Colombia is the same. What's happening in Uruguay, if you go and see the news, uh, what's happening in Chile, in Mexico, they, they just recreated dances that were hidden for 500 years. Maybe this is not our time, but it will come. And we need to keep pushing for it. Absolutely. That's amazing work, Roxana. And I, I, I wonder if anyone can comment on this. And I've been noticing that most of these movements in Latin America are led by Black women. It is women in the community leading these projects. I know in Brazil, the community Gumbo and the Baixo the, the, the women in these communities are the ones who fight and stand on the highway and put their lives at risk to get running water and education for their children. So I don't know if anyone can comment on this, on the, the gendered aspect of these, mov these movements. 
Yeah, I, I was thinking as Roxana was speaking of Maria Lifranco, which was a very influential and important activist in Rio. And she was assassinated, um, likely by our government. But she was one of the main forces driving positive change in the community of Mare. And I often see women at the front lines of activism and social work in the favelas. And I just wanted to add that we don't have any specific policies for black communities during the pandemic, but there are a lot of grassroots movements and civil engagement projects that are um, gathering donations, distributing food and masks and hand sanitizer and helping and organizing whatever way they can. So even though they are abandoned by the state, they're incredibly resilient and they're really trying their best to resist despite the state trying to kill them constantly. Yeah, the Marielle Franco case was interesting and it's interesting to mention this because the friend, uh, the person that was that suspect of killing her is fr good friends with our current president, Jair Bolsonaro. And he's the one who said that um, Quilombola communities, which are uh, mostly black communities that uh, escaped uh, uh, slavery in the early 800s and 1800s, and now uh, and now have developed into something different, but they're still made, um, predominantly black communities. And he said that these predominantly black communities should be destroyed; that they are not they're not communities at all. They're not families. So uh, the systemic racism in Brazil is reflected on how people vote too, because if you think about it, now we have a racist in charge of the country. And so that's why we don't have these kinds of policies. And he was the one who um, reduced the status of the uh, Ministry of, of uh, Women's Rights and Family into a, a secretariat. So he created all these social policy and social policy ministries are now part of a super ministry of this ministry of, of citizenship. And that was also uh, a, an attempt to um, to reduce these policies that um, that favor minorities. I wanted to, to go back to the gender uh, variable. Um, in Ecuador, uh, well, uh, last, uh, like I think it was July 25 was the international day like of, um, in, in Ecuador at least was for the Afro-Ecuadorian women. And there's um, Enise Estupiñan, she's, uh, she's a lawyer and she's a well-known um, person in her community in um, near like the, the coast in Ecuador. And one of the things she said that was very shocking, but at the same time, I'm not too surprised is that she was saying, I'm, and I'm going to quote, it's uh, Las Afro por lo general suprimos triple violencia por ser negra, ser mujer y ser pobre. And she's mainly saying that Afro women, in this case afro Ecuadorian women, they have they experienced three types of discrimination or violence. And that's because they're Black, they're women, and they're poor. So I, I wonder how, okay, and, and these three, three aspects of not only violence, but also oppression of how many generations of Black women have had to go through all these uh, different aspects. And, and I'm always thinking about what uh, Roxana said that maybe not, like you're not gonna experience it, maybe not your, your own kids, but maybe your, the future generations are gonna be able to live in a more equal world. And I'm just thinking how these uh, women that are leaders in their communities are trying to to make improvements for for them for for the present generations but also for the future generations and the importance of acknowledging the work the work they do and how uh, we as allies can support their their work not only about like reading black authors but also how to how can we support these grassroots organizations that are trying to um, improve things in their communities yeah, and how they can improve things in their communities. Because uh, at the end, I think they, they know better than, than us, right? They know what their communities need. And I think that we need to 
and well, they need their space to um, be able to take all these initiatives and how can we be allies to, to help them um, in this process. So the, ter the triple burden of poverty, gender, and blackness and race is actually a theory, a, a body of theory has been developed by uh, Afro-descending women in the Americas. And I just want to know exactly who was the person who said it. I just, for some reason, I can't find it, but I will, I will soon. It is true that like the, the face of change when talking about Afro-descending women from the Americas, like Afro-descending issues from the Americas is women. Like that has been so clear and it's difficult to dissociate, right? Like the fight for justice and equality and rights from Afro-descending women in the Americas. It's, it's, and it comes to the history of like the participations of these women in the cities, in the territories, in the relationship with uh, nature, in the relationship with uh, this, their social life. And something that is very interesting in geography that we do is like with infrastructures. Like a quick example, it will be um, when you think about, you know, have you seen a street food Latin America from Netflix? So you see there is like a predominant uh, presence of Afro-descendant women, right? As the street vendors and like the, the episode on Bahia, the episode on Bogota. Uh, I was very curious about how come in Peru there wasn't like an Afro-descendant women as well, but well, we can talk about the show in another moment. But what I was trying to say is that when you think about the constructions of the city in Latin America, for example, a huge part of the activities of the city are based on the practices and bodies of Afro-descending women. So like just, the, just like having food every day near your house, it was only possible because it was like a black woman selling the food like walking around your neighborhood and i'm talking since colonial times until now like for example in bogota you you walk and you are gonna see someone selling arepas and that someone probably is a black woman and if you go to lima you walk and you will see someone selling anticuchos and that someone is also going to be a black woman and in bahia and in different other cities of the of the continent so the fight has always been gender the reasons are so many. It's because of the presence, it's because of the activities, it's because also because, you know, like black women have been at the center of the construction of societies. They're one, the ones like taking care, taking care of the kids of the white people when they didn't want to take care of them. So like Angela Davis says this, this like amazing thing when like black women in the U.S. were like the first investigators and the first sociologists because they were working inside the house and they were like taking the information outside the house to their own neighbors. Like they knew how was to live a black life and they knew how was to live a white life. Like they have so much knowledge. And one of the things that I'm trying to do with my thesis is that, and we have take that knowledge as something that is just common at something that is just, you know, like regular as ordinary. When actually, in fact, it's extremely revolutionary because if it wasn't for the activities of these people that are, you know, literally holding the life of the city. And like what I'm doing in my thesis is actually making the argument that like Afro-Peruvian women were like, part of the rhythm of the city. They were the, the, the people, the bodies, they were like literally telling you, hey, it's time to have breakfast because it was 6 a.m. and like a black woman was walking outside your house telling, hey, I have milk. And you knew, I was like, oh, okay, my day is starting. And this woman is telling me, like this women, this activity, it's body, it's presence. So it doesn't surprise me and i think this is something actually that is not common knowledge in outside of the americas probably is that like the huge influence and importance of black bodies in our territories uh i think latin american countries are often seen as only mestizos with a mix of 
like white and indigenous people, right? From, except from, you know, like Brazil, Cuba, they're all, almost always seen as black countries. Uh, but even in this same uh, Latin American street food, like in the episode of Argentina, right? Like the first thing that the historian viewed interview about food vending in, in Argentina, the first thing that she says is like, we are, especially Buenos Aires, we are more, more close to Europe than Latin America because we're basically saying we're white, right? We're all white here. Uh, except from the migrants from other other countries, right? Like Paraguay or like Uruguay. No, well, not Uruguay, but like at least Chile, Paraguay, Peru, Bolivia. And it's like, mm, is it true though? Is it true that you're more close to Europe? Uh, or is like the discourse that you need to tell yourself constantly in order yeah. to maintain you know, like this structure where racialized people are always going to be at the bottom because this is only comfortable for you. And then like the rest of the episode is a lot of racialized people selling food. So it's like... Yeah, uh, I, I, I remember I, I was so excited to watch the series and then I heard that comment on the very first episode and I was like, are you serious? Come on. And I think what you're saying, Roxana, about about food and about how black women in our, our cities are the driving force, I find it also maybe in Colombia, I don't know about your countries, but when a white woman does the same sort of activities, it's seen as, oh my God, revolutionary, brand new woman power, like girl boss type of thing. Um, and, I, and, and a lot of branding around food as well. Like I was thinking in my own country, like, Areparina, one of the most popular brands, has a white woman's face as the logo. But who who are the women making the arepas? Not not the white woman, right? So it is a pervasive issue in our society that the work of black women goes unnoticed, and it, it, it's very structural. Sorry, I just, I just remember Caldwell, Caldwell, two thousand and seven, <laughs> the triple burden of discrimination. Uh, she's the one who's talking about this triple, triple oppression, which is very interesting because even though everyone knows about it, she's the first one on, on put it in theory and explain it. It's not that we're women, it's not that we're black, it's also that we're very, very poor. And that puts us in this very specific place in society. So go for it. Uh, I just wanted to add a couple of things that I was thinking while you were talking about the geography of black segregation in cities in Peru, and that's very present in Brazil as well. Um, a lot of apartments to this day are built with a maid's room attached to the kitchen and the quote-unquote service area where the laundry room would be. And on top of that, most buildings have a service elevator. And for the longest time, um, domestic workers were only allowed to take the service elevator, which is attached to the back door in, in apartments. So you will have a social elevator, which would lead you to the living room, and a service elevator, which would lead you to the laundry room or the kitchen. And to this day, most apartments are still built that way. And in some places, that rule is still enforced. And... Again, the domestic workers are one of the most impacted groups during the pandemic because, as Leo said, some people simply refuse to give up their privilege and continue to put others at risk just for their own comfort. And the other thing I remembered while you were talking about Latinos who think they're Europeans was a time when I met a white Brazilian here in Canada, and she told me, well, you know, I don't really see myself as Latino because, you know, culturally I'm closer to Canadians or, you know, Americans than Brazilians. And I just, I was a bit shocked and I said, that doesn't make sense, but I hate to break it to you, but the rest of the world doesn't see it that way. But at the and same time, like Latino as an identity, is not real. I, I, I agree. And 
a lot of us are European, but not in the way that we think. And we're not, you know, oh my God, like we don't, we're not the Europeans that the rest mm-hmm. of the world thinks, but we are Europeans and we have the, that responsibility to acknowledge that when we're in Latin America, that, you know, we are the des- descendants of the Spaniards and we still, you know, kind of uphold the values that the Spaniards did when we were in, when they were yeah, you know, in no, power. Absolutely. We are part of a minority privileged by colonialism. But what she was saying was that she was somehow better than Latinos because she was closer to Canadians culturally. And there is a really good movie called Bacurau. And in that movie, there is a very good scene where two characters who are white Brazilians from the South uh, are talking to Americans and they're like, oh, we're actually white like you guys. And all the Americans are just like, you're not like us. And then violence succeeds. I'm not gonna spoil the movie, but. <laughs> yeah, that makes me think a lot of like ideas of blanqueamiento and like, you need to improve the race, like go and marry uh, a white guy. Um, Cause I don't know, at least in, I've had this conversation with different people I know back in Ecuador and um, there's still the, the belief that you need to marry a white person for you to, to be better off, not only in terms of, oh, that's a cute couple, because I don't know why, but people think that only like white couples are the, like the goal, like you need to be, or like marry a white person in order to be seen as cute together. I don't know. But also there's the, the idea that um, every white person is better off in terms of wealth, in terms of, oh, their families must be like really good. so marry a white person and how a lot of of, of Latinos that are mestizos that are like mestizos but at the same time are more like white passing Latinos and how they feel entitled to feel like superior than other Latinos that are don't look the same as them and how that actually affects our um, daily lives and how we how we treat other people what the things we do to make sure that um, we are not only racist, but that we are not contributing to racism in our countries and in our communities. So I think that just like ideas of rancamiento and like how we treat mestizaje like needs to change. I think that we've normalized many uh, ideas surrounding both like these terms of blanqueamiento, of mestizaje and how like, or A, we're all equal, but at the same time we're not. And then like you need to marry and be with someone why just improve their race? So I think that these type of um, b- beliefs and ideas like need to like be torn down. <laughs> um, we have normalized them for, for many years and we need changes. And we can start by acknowledging our positions of, of privilege, how we've been benefited by this um, system that is racist and that has affected uh, many communities and many minority groups. Uh, just on blanqueamento, I wanted to add something I forgot to mention when I was talking about um, historical context. Um, blanqueamento was actually an official policy in Brazil for a long time. We were the last country to abolish slavery in the Western world. And after we abolished slavery, there were no policies in place to make sure that black people integrate the workforce and you know have a way to make a living but instead of integrating black people to the workforce they made sure to get immigrants from italy and germany and other countries that were affected by wars in europe to improve our race in brazil by bringing a white workforce Aside from the historical factors, I wanted to switch switch gears and talk about social movements. And mainly nowadays, we had the assassination of George Floyd and then uh, the repercussion of the Black Lives Matter movements again in the now in middle middle to early 2020. And I'm wondering what was the reflection of the Black Lives Matter movements um, in your Latin American countries? Was it difference? Was uh, was it as big as it happened in the U.S.? Was it as big as it happened in the U.S.? That's a good question. I 
from my reading, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement in Colombia, it doesn't go by the name, the Black Lives Matter movement, like we know it here, but it has been a struggle that has existed for many, many years. But um, specifically, I was reading about a protest that happened in Bogota, you know, some, some years ago, some four years ago, where, um, you know, they use the words and the same chants and mottos as the protesters in America were using, but in Colombia, and they were saying it in English. So they were building that international solidarity for the movement. Um, and still to this day, there it, there's still a lot of work that's being done in Colombia. Colombia has a huge black population that, you know, in, in our media is very hidden. And, and I would like to point out, like, our societies, you know, they're so so influenced by like a white hegemonic system that even these movements trying to find information about them it's so hidden in Colombia you can't like finding the mainstream news to cover these protests is hard um, but yeah it, it has there's been a lot of of solidarity there in Colombia yeah I will say that it has inspired um movements in Ecuador, not only uh, led by, by Black people, but also um, mestizos that are acknowledging their power and that they are trying to create spaces of uh, where, where we can have a conversations about racism in, in, in Ecuador and how um, we can be allies of the Black communities. Um, so I think that's, I'm, I'm really happy that these type of conversations are taking place, but there are more things we can do, right? Uh, I think that unfortunately, due to all the pandemic situations in, in Ecuador, we had curfews for, for many like months in different cities. Um, so I think it, it was hard to try to do something similar as the protests that were going in the U.S., that were taking place in the U.S. But I think that there's um, all, the, all the movements and all the uh, events that took place in the U.S. Have, have inspired Black organizations in Ecuador and has like have inspired people to start talking about it. Um, not only because how George, like the death of George Floyd created these or contributed to these, um, how can we call it, like these um, idea of solidarity in terms of how people came together to protest and um, call for action uh, in the U.S., but also in, in different parts of the world. So I think that as, as much as the, the events are happening in Ecuador are not as similar as the, the things that are happening in the U.S., I think that there's, there has been some um, initiatives going on. Yeah, I think what you said about the movements not being so visible in the media is very telling. Um, in Brazil, there was a big repercussion from the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, I think we translated it to Vidas Negras Importam. But at the same time, as I was engaging with social media and posting things about the protests here in North America, um, a lot of my friends messaged me saying, well, yeah, we have a George Floyd in Brazil every 23 minutes. And that's something that came up during those discussions in Brazil, which is how we tend to look abroad when we should really be looking in our own territory and what's going on with Black lives in Brazil. But there is definitely a history of um, suppressing and making those struggles invisible in Brazil. When we think about the myth of racial democracy and how Black struggle and Black resistance was erased from our history, even from the colonial period, there were numerous attempts of liberation that were heavily suppressed by state military, but that are often omitted or not told about in schools. So we just think, oh, yeah, slavery was bad, but it's over now. And, you know, we're all friends and happy. Yeah, same in Peru. Um, I, I always going to repeat this. There wasn't coloniza colonization without resistance. And in Latin America, and as same as in North America with, uh, with the Maroons population, in Latin America we have Palenques, we have Quilombos, we have all these spaces that symbolize the system that was like Black people escaping from 
the colonial rule and trying to survive without these structures and that has always existed. This is not new, this is not something that we're discovering, but like Anna was saying, it's just something that has been hidden from the official history of our countries. The Black Lives Matters movement in the US, uh, same as you have mentioned, like it did sound a lot in Peru, people, you know, they were putting the black square on their Instagram, uh, in solidarity with the movement. But also, I think it's twofold because also people tend to say that that's what's happening in the US, right? Here we, we're all mestizos, here we don't have racism as the same way as it is in the US. And like, same in Brazil, like Afro-Peruvian people are the ones that are more police on the streets, the ones that are more stereotypes on our daily lives, the ones that are most vilified by social media, the ones that are used as to mock on, you know, like by comedians, like that doesn't change. And I remember that when, when the trying to, to make, so July 25th is the day of Afro-Latina, Afro-Caribbean and women from diaspora. This is something that has been going on from, for, from 10 years now. And like Afro-Peruvian women were trying to claim that day as their own too, and they're trying to make that day the national day of Afro-Peruvian women, just to, to make it legal in the Peruvian territory as a day that we need to recognize. And that was happening. Uh, so like people were in Congress trying to talk about this, and that George Floyd thing was happening in the US. And it was so surprising to see how People were saying, yeah, no, what's happening with George Floyd is so, so bad. And at the same time, but why do we need a National Day of Afro Peruvian women? Are we all Peruvians? Why don't we have a... I remember someone saying, so indigenous women, they have a day too? I was like, yeah, they do. <laughs> they, they really do. Uh, it exists for years and years now. So it's twofold, it's complicated. It's a racial history that is not the same but it's the same at the same time it's very complex and and we need to discuss it in its form and we need to discuss it in, in its context and we need to understand why white Argentinians will say they are more European than Latinos and we also need to understand why please correct me like 50% of the Brazilian population is a descendant we need to understand these complexities in our region and for that we need to read Afro-Latino and Afro-Latinx authors. We need to go to Batlis Nacimiento in Brazil to understand the importance of Quilombos and Yemaya and understand the importance of spirituality. We need to read uh, Arturo Escobar in Proceso Comunidades Negras in Colombia. We need to read uh, Victoria Santa Cruz. Victoria Santa Cruz is an Afro-Peruvian mus musician and scholar and she has this beautiful poem it's like a visual album, just like exactly what Beyoncé is doing right now, but in the 60s. So go look at Victoria Santa Cruz and her, her visual song called And They Call Me Black, Me Llamaron Negra. So you can see how the Afro-Peruvian movement is also, has been there from, for so long. I know like people get surprised. For example, here in Canada, I always being asked, so like, are you pro-Latina? Like, mm, why? Because they are always looking at these particular stereotypes from what is seen in Hollywood, right? But we do exist, we do matter, and we need to keep fighting for that. I just wanted to add one last statistic from Brazil that I think is very telling of how concealed racism is and how we're still stuck on the denial phase of the five stages of grief. Um, uh, so a survey in 1988 asked Brazilians if they consider themselves to be racist and 97% of the survey respondents said no. But when they were asked if they knew someone or a situation that revealed discrimination, racial in Brazil, 98% of respondents said yes. So it's this paradoxical reality where everyone knows a racist, but no one is a racist or considers themselves to be a racist. So 
in Mexico, we need to read to Monica Moreno Figueroa, who is actually uh, theorizing about the myth of mestizaje and beauty in relationship to Afro-descending women in Mexico, which is very cool and very interesting. And she's like an amazing scholar. Wow. And so in cool. Colombia, we have this also amazing scholar. She's a very young scholar, is Aurora Vergara. And she's just amazing. She just um, defended her PhD probably five years ago, and it's a really revolutionary black studies in Colombia. So go go look at Aurora Vergara, go look to Monica Moreno Figueroa, to Victoria Santa Cruz, to Beatriz Nascimento in Brazil. Like go look for these authors because <clears throat> they're also showing us and telling us like there's we have so much knowledge that it's actually it doesn't come in these ways, in this European, you know, like very Cartesian ways of like this is knowledge and this is not knowledge. Like we're here, like with our music, with our cooking, with our histories, with our values, with our presence, to tell you our lives matters, right? And our lives are very significant because of that. So, yeah. It's it's definitely structurally important to understand um, how uh, racially determined Latin America is and how especially Brazil is uh, racially cuts both socially and economically. And of course, we're going to keep on reading and keep um, informed and supporting these movements. But for now, I'm going to have to wrap up this podcast. I'd like to thank everyone for coming. Uh, El Cafecito is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. And thank you again for coming, and I'll see everyone next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.